So, Mark. Yes? I'm going to pull back the curtain a little bit, which is, of course, a reference to a movie, and say that it is September right now, as we record. Yeah, it is. But this episode is coming out right before Thanksgiving. The start of the holiday movie season. That's right. And allegedly, according to the current schedule, when this episode comes out, the James Bond movie No Time to Die and Pixar's Soul will have both just opened. And so I'm curious, Mark, what movie that is allegedly going to come out this year are you most excited to hypothetically see if it is safe to leave your home? Hmm. I firmly believe that I will not see any movies for a very long time because it sounds like the absolute worst environment. Yeah, uh, you should not do it. The AV Club did a great interview back in August with a bunch of doctors who explained why movies are perhaps the worst place you can go to during a pandemic. But I think that I'm most excited about maybe Dune. Dune! The production stills look so cool. Dune is my answer as well. It looks awesome. I mean, Zendaya looks great in it. Uh, And Rebecca Ferguson as Lady Jessica. Yeah, I think that's the answer. It's the clear answer. I can't wait to see what Denis Villeneuve does with that. Um, And in a true triumph for me, Dune opens the same day as Steven Spielberg's West Side Story adaptation. I forgot that that was a thing. I am still pretty excited about it. I'm very curious. So... I don't believe I will see either of those movies in theaters, uh, or any movie, but nope, I hope so. Frankly, listeners, you probably shouldn't either. Unless, somehow, there is actually a safe and effective vaccine that has come out by then. Which, I mean, as both of us are young and healthy people, we probably will not have gotten the vaccine at that point. Right. It should go to the more vulnerable populations first. So we will stay home and watch the third movie coming out that day, the long-delayed sequel, Coming to America. Oh, is that also coming out this year? I forgot how many good movies were supposed to come out this year. That's disappointing. Well, Coming to America, you have to say it in a way that emphasizes that the two is the number two. Right. Is being released by Netflix. So we will be able to see that one. And in honor of its release, after we finish our Christmas coverage this year, we will be covering the original Coming to America in our feed. All that to say, stay home. Don't go to the movies. If you're going to do something, do it outside and follow all health guidelines being published. Stay safe, everyone. Mark, two days before Christmas, you can see The Croods, colon, A New Age, the sequel to DreamWorks' The Croods. Do we have to watch that? We should watch The Croods. All right. I don't know anything about it. it sounds bad. I know bad. it stars Nicolas Cage as a caveman. All right, I'm more on board. <laughs> All right, fine. Um, Next, I'm going to make you watch Turbo. (laughs) What's Turbo? What are these movies? Turbo is like cars, but with snails. And Ryan Reynolds is the Lightning McQueen character, who is a snail. What is DreamWorks? Everything just gets weirder. Oh, my God. We haven't done one in so long, and I'm so grateful. Oh, wait, we did Sinbad. Let me tell you, Mark. January, we got him coming up. We got Congo. And we got DreamWorks. <laughs> what a month. What a month. Anyway. We're alternate. We do Congo, a DreamWorks movie. Congo again, <laughs> a different DreamWorks movie. <laughs> Get ready for that schedule, listeners. To con to go. All right. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. And this is an investigative podcast dedicated to examining one of the least important issues of our day. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable? Or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are looking at William Wyler's 1946 Best Picture winner, The Best Years of Our Lives. I had never heard of this movie. It is, like, in the 30s on the AFI Top 100 list. It won Best Picture. It won six other Oscars. And yet, somehow, I feel like this movie has no cultural impact, which I find fascinating. Well, I was aware of it because I took a class in college on domestic politics during the Cold War. And my professor showed us segments from this movie when talking about people adjusting to life after World War II. So I had seen some of the stuff, particularly sequences with Homer Parrish, the character with hooks for hands. But I had not seen anything close to this movie's entire 170-minute runtime. And I think it's the kind of thing that doesn't have a lot of, 
like flashy memorable things the way that like it's a wonderful life which comes out in the same year has these striking moments of i wish i'd never been born or every time a bell rings an angel gets its wings the thing about this movie is it's much quieter in a lot of its moments where it is about these people as individuals wrestling with their own life in the wake of the war which kind of makes it less the kind of movie that you can clap and cheer and watch a million times it's very much of that moment of actually depicting what life would have been like for returning soldiers from World War II. But I find that it's still extremely relevant. So I'm sure. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, and we are recording in September. This episode comes out in mid-November. But this is a movie that is asking the question, after a time of great national trauma, can things go back to normal? And I mean, the answer in this is kind of yes and no. It's a, it's a maybe. It's a maybe. Like, it's always a maybe. And you can see already what's changing on the horizon. And the movie points at some of the major changes that are already happening. Right, there's the son's fear of nuclear catastrophe. And the man at the soda counter at the drugstore who is saying that we fought the wrong people, we should have been fighting the communists instead, which presages the, like, hatred of communism that was developing. Yeah, but that guy's also an America firster from, like, before the war, where he's saying, we didn't have any quarrel with the Nazis, we should have gotten along with them, things would have been fine. And I could not believe when he starts tossing off lines about how the war was a mistake and people who got injured were suckers because we are recording this the same week that there were widespread reports of Donald Trump saying the same thing about people who got injured in wartime. Yeah, that was quite a scene to watch in this time. There's a resonance throughout. I mean, I will say I was brought almost to tears early in the movie. There's the moment when Al comes home after having been gone for years and like tentatively and then vigorously just hugs his wife for the first time in ages. And that thing hits when you've been sitting inside for so long. This movie actually made me misty-eyed a couple times out of both like sadness and happiness. Yeah, and I think part of that is a virtue of its nearly three-hour runtime. We get to spend so long with these people. It joins the vaunted pantheon of films that I don't mind how long they are, which is basically the three extended edition Lord of the Rings movies and this now. Because <laughs> one of the only other three-hour movies I've watched is Towering Inferno, and I am still mad about it. I'm just still bewildered by the guy who was banging in his office when he should have been running that event. And then he just, like, jumps out a window. No, no. He runs into the fire and is incinerated. She jumps out the window. Ah, right. Anyway, <laughs> back to best so, the best years of our lives. The best years of our lives. And actually, like, one of the things I appreciate about this movie, in that, like, it is a movie with a lot of heart and some very warm moments. But, like you said, it is a movie that is examining what it means to come back from the war. And one of the most striking things for about it, watching it, was the way that I assumed there was going to be a title drop. And there almost is... When Marie leaves Fred, and she's talking about all the stuff that she gave up to be married to Fred, and one of the things she talks about is having given up the best years of her life for him. And she's talking about the years during the war, and that inversion of, like, the way that the people at home, their lives sort of went on, but were fundamentally changed, like we see with Al's family. But that for pe these people, and especially for Fred and Homer, these were arguably some of the worst years of their lives. I also found it interesting, like... You kind of get the image, the war's over, everything's back to normal. But the movie is still pointing out, like, they're still rationing on some goods at the time. And the economy is not actually getting better. Like, it might be getting... Someone talks about how he's expecting a depression to come following the war. And it really shows what life would have actually been like, which you don't get in movies modern movies about World War II, and even movies at the time about the time period itself. This is really wrestling with a moment of change. And that was the goal of the movie. So Samuel Goldwyn, who was the producer of the movie, was inspired by a 1944 Time Magazine article about the difficulty of soldiers returning to civilian life. So he hired a writer named McKinley Cantor to write a screenplay inspired by the Time article. Uh, Cantor did not do that. Instead, he wrote a novella in blank verse which was then adapted by Robert Sherwood, who had written a bunch of anti-war plays in the past, which I think shows in this movie. This movie, I found out, was detested by someone who 
I don't know if we've brought her up, but I have some strong feelings about. Ayn Rand hated this movie. I am unsurprised. Because she goes on a rant about how, like, having the bank be shown as not the a trustworthy organization and that free enterprise isn't showed actively solving everyone's problems is just making it communist propaganda. And the FBI cited Ayn Rand in their report about this movie having pro-communist proclivities within it for the HUAC. And remember, the same thing happened to It's a Wonderful Life, which came out this same year because of its portrayal of banks. And it's just, banks were clearly so responsible for so many of the Depression-era problems. Of course people don't like them. Yeah, and I think that the bank portrayal in this one is really interesting. You know, especially thinking about ways that contemporary politics resonate in the best years of our lives. The way that the bank president is always talking about, like, yes, of course, we so value the work that these veterans do. We so want to help them out. We want to be able to provide them with loans. Like, we are here to give back to our society as long as it's responsible. And so they're saying all these things, but not following through on them. And I think that is extended to all of society in the movie. Right. I think about the way that Fred has so much difficulty adjusting to life, finding a job. The interesting thing is, for all that, you can see in the movie some of the backlash that's about to happen for things, especially issues like women's rights, where World War II was a moment where women entered the workforce, they started feeling independent for the first time, but the return of all the soldiers basically walked back all of the gains that had been made throughout, I mean, the past couple decades to really reduce the role of women in public life to a place where it hadn't been for a long time. And the movie hints at it in a more positive way than we see it now. With, I mean, I guess Peggy keeps her job, but Marie has been going out and doing her own thing and misses the independence. And as a result, she's kind of villainized for it. Sure. But I do think it's worth acknowledging the way that, like, Marie is one angle of that. But... I don't think the movie villainizes Peggy or Millie for the ways that they have adjusted their life far beyond what Al expected while he was gone, where he clearly does not know how he fits in with his own family. He is expecting to return to this sort of father-knows-best environment, and he has found that his family doesn't expect or want that from him anymore. Right, and this is very common at the time. They don't have a maid that lives with them, so Millie's learned how to take care of the house all on her own. Peggy helps out, and Al is like aghast. He's like, you have to do the dishes yourself? Millie's just like, I've been doing it for a while. I don't mind. Like, we all had to adjust and make do. And I think that Al is clearly the one who's supposed to have like, return to normalcy most easily, where he gets the same job, he has a loving wife of many years and children, but even he is shown struggling to adjust to the new reality, and his relationship with Millie is kind of shaken, and I really, I think that was a really interesting angle, especially, of Al is the one who should have gotten, like, the happily ever after, in a way, but he is also completely messed up, even by the change kind of subtle changes in his family of like his daughter now has a job and is independent while still living at home and then Millie has to do housework. And I think that's something that would have been widespread at the time given the number of people who are participating in the war effort in some way. You know, the director William Wyler himself had enlisted in the army for the Air Force's propaganda wing during the war and he flew combat missions over Europe to make a pair of documentaries about the Air Force. And this is the first movie that he made coming back after the war. And he actually, I found out, staffed almost all of the movie with veterans. Like, all of the background work, the grips and stuff, he tried to fill those roles as much as possible with veterans so that there's a lot of real experienced people informing how this movie's story is told, too. Yeah, and they're using a lot of relevant locations. The airfield where Fred goes to sit in a plane as the planes are being disassembled was an actual airfield in Ontario where that was taking place. I also appreciated that you never really get a sense of where Boone City is. It's somewhere from which you can fly east and west reasonably. Right, and it's like a small town that actually seems to have grown some during the war. 
things seem very busy there, which kind of throws everyone off. But it is still depicted as kind of an any town USA. Yeah, it was its design was based somewhat on Cincinnati, but pointedly could be anywhere. Right. Um, I don't get the hot dog stand that says settle for a hot dog. Isn't that bad at marketing? I think maybe like settle in for a hot dog. I guess it's pointing out like everyone that's stopping at a hot dog stand is kind of settling for a hot dog. I mean, that's true. That's it. Like, I could go for a hot dog right now. Yeah. But it's still funny where it was just like, settle for a hot dog, question mark? (laughs) Maybe it's a part of town where people are getting in fights a lot. And it's like, instead of like settling it with your fists, settle with a hot dog. And you could like lady and the tramp a hot dog between the two of you to instead of fighting you end with a kiss. (laughs) That whole scene of them returning to town threw me off because it was so positive and happy but it in a way that stuck out where i think is the music especially like really took me out of the vibe the movie was actually trying to give i think it's supposed to be positive i think we're getting a sense of this town that frankly seems to be doing quite well in a way they might not have expected they have been in war zones homer lost his hands fred has pretty serious ptsd al appears to have developed some alcoholism and While they have gone through this traumatic experience, things just seem better than ever for the town. I think it's supposed to be a little bit unnerving. It's so jaunty, the music. Yeah. This movie has a lot of interesting stuff going on in terms of its filmmaking, where it makes use of some close-ups in interesting places, but also will just park the camera for really long takes to do some really delicious tension building. There's this scene of Al and Fred at Butch's bar where the camera just watches the two of them facing each other having that conversation about whether or not Fred is in love with Peggy. And then there's the other shot at the wedding where the main focus is on Homer getting married to Wilma, but we have Fred and Peggy just staring at each other across the room at the same time. I appreciated too how kind of cramped everything felt. The houses were not very large. Nope. Everything kind of felt really close together, which heightened the tension that these people are feeling too. Because in a way, their world is kind of shrinking. They've spent the last few years in completely new places, like seeing the world. But now everything might, it kind of suggests everything when they've returned home does seem kind of smaller in a way. And probably the best example of that, the two best examples of that are with Fred, who is so supremely confident in military contexts. He is a captain. He's comfortable in command, but seems very much unsure of himself back at home and then we've got homer parish who had his hands blown off and now has these hooks and we see both in the car and at butch's bar he's comfortable able to joke around have a good time with other veterans but when he gets home and he sees his family he's like frozen he's not sure what to do because he's so afraid of how other people will react right and he's so deft with the hooks too that he's not really an object of pity i mean He's not a subject of, like, misery porn or anything. He's just a guy who's going through life and has this change. But it still does a good job showing how it has changed his life. Like, it has affected him. Right. So, Homer Parrish was originally just going to be a character with PTSD played by an actor. But William Wyler saw an army documentary called Diary of a Sergeant, which is about rehabilitating veterans and features Harold Russell, this guy who was teaching demolitions work at an army base in North Carolina when a defective fuse went off and blew up his hands. And so he got these hooks in the documentary, talked about how he goes through his life. It's pretty good. I'll put it on our social media this week. And so Weiler grabbed Harold Russell and put him in the movie. And I think, you know, this is a movie that's incredibly well made and incredibly well performed. I think the casting of Harold Russell is maybe the best move that Weiler makes. This movie is definitely one of the most naturalistic movie from this era in terms of acting and i think that he does a good job of that like homer especially does a good job of that and it's because he's not been trained in like stella adler or actor studio or anything he is just kind of a guy giving a really good performance but there's nothing heightened about the way anyone talks or anything like that which you see in some other movies from this era And that's the point here, is the people are subdued because they aren't sure of their place in the world. This is not a group of supremely confident people. Right. I really enjoyed seeing that in a movie from this era. 
Fun fact about Harold Russell, who plays Homer Parrish. He is the only actor ever to win two Oscars for the same performance. Because this movie was a gigantic hit. It was the highest grossing film of the decade from the 1940s. It was also the highest grossing movie since going back further, since Gone with the Wind. And at the Academy Awards that year, it won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor for Frederick March playing Al, Best Screenplay, Best Editing, and Best Original Score. It was nominated for Best Sound and Lost to the Jolson Story. Harold Russell was nominated for Supporting Actor. The Academy figured he was probably going to lose, being a non-professional actor. So the Academy gave him a special award for bringing hope and courage to his fellow veterans. And then he won Best Supporting Actor. What an award. Yeah. Hope and courage to his fellow veterans. The Academy used to give out more Special Achievement Oscars. I like that. I think more people should get awards. Just saying, like, something cool happened in movies this year, and we don't really have the normal mechanisms to acknowledge it, but we want to acknowledge it. The way that they gave a bunch of miniature Oscars to Walt Disney after Snow White came out. Right. And I mean, I still think there should be Best Stunt Oscar. Well, yes, of course there should be a Best Stunts Oscar. Like, they just need to recognize more about movies at the Oscars. And I think they kind of used to did that a bit better with the special achievements. Part of the problem is that the Academy thinks the Oscars should be shorter, when in fact they should recognize that they need to just lean into catering to their audience and in fact be longer. Right. Start earlier. Even if it is like 1 p.m. in California. I really like Emily Vanderwerf pitched on Twitter one time that what they should do is be like the Super Bowl. Start Oscars coverage at like 3 p.m. Eastern, but show all the shorts in the run up to it. And then like like show shorts, then have some commentary, then shorts and commentary and build up to the same start time. I think that sounds very fun. Yeah. And then I wouldn't have to spend all this time tracking down shorts. Anyway, back to uh, Harold... What's his last name? Harold Russell. Harold Russell's Oscars. Another fun fact I found out about him. He is the reason that actors are not allowed to sell their Oscars. Because he is the he's only one to have. He's not? He, he's actually not. The rule predates this. You're right that he is one of the only people ever to sell an Oscar. In 1992, he sold his Best Supporting Actor Oscar to pay his wife's medical bills. And the Academy got like really snotty about it. Where they were like, yeah, his new wife just wanted to go on a cruise. And it's like, oh, it was his second wife, but they'd been married for 11 years and she was quite sick. But the Academy has actually since 1950 made Academy Award recipients sign a thing that if they want to sell an Oscar, they have to give the Academy 30 days to buy it for a dollar. That's such a dumb rule. It is a dumb rule. I think if you've earned your Oscar and you want to sell it, go for it. Yeah, it's the Academy's obsession with, like, treating them as a, a special, unique thing and not a secondary market item like Super Bowl rings. Yeah, I have a lot of issues with the Academy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm trying to think of other things I've learned about this movie. I think my favorite fact is that Ayn Rand hated it. I mean, that's a great fact. That's a good endorsement for this movie. Yeah, I mean, that just made me like it even more. Yeah, it was one of the inaugural class of 25 movies added to the Library of Congress when they started the National Film Registry in 1989. I think that's a good choice, especially for Library of Congress. Yeah, it is very much a portrait of a period and an astoundingly well-made one at that. I mean, we do have to acknowledge that this movie has a lot of the problems of the era and that there's not a single person of color in it, even in the background. That's not true. There is, in the first scene at the airport, when Fred is trying to find a plane, and then there's this other rich dude who's trying to find oh, a plane. Yes. And I would like to note that this rich man's suitcase is 16 pounds overweight, which is a banana's way to fly. Yeah. Um, yes, his, like butler or driver the or porter. whatever that man's role is, is a black man. Uh, yes. So there is a black person on screen, but it is in a servant role and has no lines. That man fascinated me because I can't imagine seeing someone at the counter in the middle of a transaction and then just walking up. And also up. like coming off of a war and in an officer's uniform. Right. And the man just walks up and pushes him out of the way and is like, hello, my name's blank and I'm like flying on this plane. I have a reservation. I wrote down his character name. It was Mr. Gibbons because I was so bewildered by having 16 extra pounds in his luggage. He was such an interesting character and then also the whole concept of him just walking up to the counter and being like i need to go to boone city do you have any flights available and then she's kind of just like having to 
check her book and make a reservation and it just shows how weird air travel must have kind of been before it was fascinating to get to see it right it was cool to see how it was like you couldn't really figure out the plane schedule and make a reservation in advance i think even in the 60s my grandparents were telling me you had to basically get the catalog of the airline delivered to your house to check their schedule and then call to make the reservation it's like movie phone Right, kind of similar vibe. It's almost like the movie time listing in the newspaper, which I used to also do at my grandparents' houses. We That's the only way we'd figure out when movies were. Yeah, this movie is quite massive. Uh, it's 170 minutes. Uh, it is streaming on Canopy, and if you have time off this week with the holiday, I really do recommend that you take a couple hours and watch it. I think so. I mean, it's definitely... I felt that it went faster than I thought it would. Yeah, it's kind of zippy. Because there's a lot going on, but they don't really linger longer on things than they need to. Like, it didn't feel like it dragged because there's so many stories being told. Yeah, it's a good way to spend your Friday afternoon when you do not go out to crowded stores. Exactly. But I think we should maybe start talking about the romance because we've got a couple of different relationships to dig into. Right. So... Every week, we break down the romantic plotline of the film into five points. This week, we will be discussing five different romantic relationships in the movie, and we'll be starting with Homer and Wilma. Well, now you know, Wilma. Now you have an idea of what it is. I guess you don't know what to say. It's all right. Go on home. Go away like your family said. I know what to say, Homer. I love you, and I'm never going to leave you. Never. So Homer, as we said, is played by Harold Russell, who was a World War II veteran who really did lose his arms in a demolitions accident. In the movie, Homer Parrish worked in the engine room on an aircraft carrier, and when they were in combat, his engine room blew up, and he lost his arms as a result of that. So he is returning from the war, and among other things, we'll be seeing his high school sweetheart, Wilma. Right, so he comes home and sees his parents and I think sister, I guess? She's yeah, the very little girl. Young. And everyone's very excited. And then Wilma apparently is the girl next door and comes over. She's played by Kathy O'Donnell, who has one of my favorite credits, which is introducing. I love when movies say they're introducing someone. Love an introducing. It's right up there with and as for me. And then she actually, which I thought was quite bold for an unmarried couple, she like openly kisses him in front of all of their parents. But it's an awkward interaction because she comes out and she's like, oh my gosh, Homer, you're here. And he doesn't go up to her. He just kind of stands there. She goes up to him, kisses him. And Fred and Al are watching and note that like he doesn't even like put his arms around her or anything. He just kind of stands there still. Right. He can't bring himself to wrap his arms around her because he's not sure how she'll react to the loss of his hands because his mom does not handle it well. I think this movie engages with Homer's disability really well, because he is never not given dignity as an individual. He is shown able to live his life quite well, but it also engages with the ways that he is affected by other people's reactions. I heard that Homer Parrish is depicted as less capable than Harold Russell actually was. Like Harold Russell was able to put his prosthetics on himself. Wow. Whereas Homer Parrish wasn't. So he actually had to like tone it down to make the relationship with Wilma more impactful. That's interesting. I did not know that. Yeah. One of the best scenes, I think, of the movie is when Homer is kind of pushing Wilma away. Uh, just like some context. Homer was like the star before he left. He was the quarterback. Like it was a stereotypical thing. He was the quarterback of the high school football team. Wilma was a cheerleader. His room is full of photos of him playing all sorts of different sports. And I mean, based off the size of the high school football stadium, it is very popular team. That's actually a college stadium. Yeah, I can imagine. So she is trying to tell him that she does not, like, she still loves him and is trying to continue the relationship while Homer is pushing her away. Right. That first night when he comes back, their families are having a drink together And Homer messes up picking up a glass and spills it. And he's so upset by it and by the reactions of other people in the room, not Wilma, but others in their families, that he just leaves and goes downtown to his uncle's bar. Oh, butches. 
Butch's seems like a fun bar, but I don't know that Butch seems like a fun guy. No, he seems to run a bar very different than his own attitude. Yeah, for example, Butch refuses to allow Homer to buy any liquor. Yeah, he can only drink beer. And he's probably, like, in his early 20s at this point, too. Right. And having been in the Navy, has definitely consumed liquor in his lifetime. But Homer and Wilma one night are talking and Wilma is trying to explain like I don't mind I want to be with you and then Homer says I'm about to go to bed come with me and see what it's like yeah I agree this is one of the best scenes in the movie and Homer is trying to get ready for bed and is showing like I can take these off but I can't put them back on and then I can't even button my own PJs and Wilma's just like well I can button your PJs for you and starts buttoning up his PJ shirt and Wilma's just showing how willing she is to be in this relationship and Homer is so moved by it and what's been going on there too is that she's come over to be like Homer what is going on between us my family is sending me away tomorrow because they want me to forget about you because It seems like this relationship isn't going anywhere. Like, we were engaged. We've been together for a while. Like, why aren't we getting married? And Homer's response is, maybe you should go away and forget about me. Yeah. Oh, so sad. It's because he is embarrassed by the ways that he needs help, and he hasn't given her the opportunity to help him. Right. But as soon as she shows how willing she is to help, he's able to accept it, and they progress forward in their relationship. And they get married. And they get married. And the movie ends at their wedding. Which is very nice. There are a lot of details about their wedding that I like. Probably none more so than the bad children's choir. (laughs) They're so bad. It's so funny. It's about to be Christmas music. Like, we're going to be hearing a lot of bad children's choirs over the next month. And I love the ways that they are not coordinated, not quite singing the right notes. Some of the kids are faster than the others. Right. And they one of them always misses the intro. But I think one of my favorite moments I teared up is during the ceremony, when they get to the exchanging of the rings, everyone in the whole room, you can feel the tension as he's getting the ring situated in his claw, his hook. But he manages to successfully put the ring on his wife's finger. And oh, that really moved me. And then, you know... They kiss, and they're married, and it's so sweet. Yeah. The Homer-Wilma relationship is definitely my favorite. It's just very, very sweet and supportive. Right. (laughs) And it's so well done. I think my favorite, though, probably is number two. So this is also a very good one. Al and Millie. You'll probably have to make a speech. It's my plan to meet that situation by getting well plastered. This is the oldest of our group. We've got Al played by Frederick March and Millie played by our old friend Myrna Loy. Who at the time was seen as taking like a small role in a small film for this. Right. But in fact, I think it's a pivotal role in a great film. (laughs) Right. We of course have seen Myrna Loy before in the greatest nightgown of all time in The Thin Man. She is so good in this movie. And she definitely deserves the top billing, I think. As her star power and also performance shows, like, that was basically her condition for taking this smaller role. She cared a lot about the story. And then she was just like, just give me top billing and I'll be in it. And so she plays Al's wife, who Al is definitely, he was rich before he went off to war. He was a well-paid banker. He lives in the nicest building in town, has a nice apartment, two children. This is one of the interesting things about the movie is the way that it investigates the status of people who were involved in the war, where Al was a sergeant during the war and Fred was a captain. So Fred outranked Al and made quite a bit more money than Al during the war. But as soon as they get out of the cab, Fred is a guy whose parents live in a literal shack And Al is a rich banker. Right. The status in the armed forces and outside of it is just completely different. And adjusting to that is one of the hardest parts, I think, of coming home. Especially for Fred, who seems to have really thrived in the army. Yeah. So Al comes home, surprises his family. Which, it's a wonderful sequence. It is. When he comes in, his son sees him and is really excited. Al covers his mouth because he wants to surprise his wife. Al does the same thing with his daughter, Peggy. And like I said, there's that moment when he's come home and he and his wife hug for the first time in years. And Billy keeps yelling from the back, like, who is it? Why aren't you saying anything? And it's clear that she realizes, but she isn't willing to be certain. And then when she comes out, they hug and it's so sweet. And then we get a scene of Al and Millie, though. It 
basically immediately becomes awkward for all of the family. In part because of the stuff you've talked about, where this family has just moved in different directions. Like, there aren't servants anymore, and Millie takes care of the home, and Peggy is going out and working in hospitals. There's this wonderful interaction where Al realizes Peggy has been going out with boys, and he's like, well, have you told her what she needs to know? And Millie's like, Peggy works in a hospital. She has seen more naked people than you or I ever will. And then his son is now a senior in high school and has a very different attitude towards the war than Al does. Right. He's like, father, you were at Hiroshima. Did you notice like radiation poisoning? Right. And then when his dad gives him a samurai sword and a flag that he'd taken from a Japanese soldier he had killed, his son's like, oh, I know about this, but he's not very excited because I I also would be thrown off if my dad brought me a samurai sword. Or something and was like, I got this off a dead body. Right. Uh, And then the son kind of just disappears for the rest of the movie. He's not in the rest of the movie. (laughs) Yep, he's gone. I was like, I think I would be annoyed if everyone was like, go do your homework. And then everyone else went out and went bar hopping. I mean, I guess he's probably not legal age. Yeah. But yeah, he, he Still a bummer. sent off to go do his homework, and I guess he's doing it for the rest of the months that this movie takes place over, because you don't see him again. They go out bar hopping, though. This is where we first get an inkling of Al's alcoholism, which feels like it's a new thing in the way that Millie reacts to it. I think that it's a new thing for him even coming home. Like, I don't think he was having alcohol dependency issues in the army. I think this is his adjusting to a new reality and feeling constantly uncomfortable by drinking too much. I think that's probably true. And there are some nice moments in it, like when they're at Butch's and he and Millie dance. Right. But even that's kind of thrown off because isn't that when he says, you remind me of my wife? Right, which I think is supposed to be a bit. Okay. I was thrown because I also was thinking like, he's slipped back into dancing with different women in the war because there's a I lot of- I thought that was possible. There's a lot of but... implications throughout the movie of like, during the war relation, like, you know, there's a lot of high chance that you cheated on me, but we're just going to move past it. Yeah. I thought it was possible at Butch's that he was slipping like that, but that becomes an extended conversation where it felt to me like the two of them were playing with each other. Yeah. I think that's fair. But yeah, they dance. It's very sweet. But Millie is very worried every time Al takes a drink. There's the sequence later when he's giving the speech to the bank and she's making tally marks on the tablecloth of each drink he has. I gotta say, that first night when they go out bar hopping, she starts to seem worried a bit early. Where it's like he has one drink and Millie's kind (gasps) of scandalized at first. Which I think maybe suggests something about his life beforehand. That he was barely drinking at all. Right. So eventually they go home and he has pretty much blacked out and then Millie puts him to bed. The next morning she makes him breakfast in bed and one of the things I love about this movie is the way that Myrna Loy is able to be this very stable force anchoring her household while still pushing people in new directions. Like the way that she is with Peggy and supporting her and the way that she is with her husband and asserting her own life. But we also get to see the extent to which she cares about each of the people in her family. And with the breakfast well, in maybe bed, not the this... son. <laughs> well, maybe not the son. Uh, but there's this marvelous moment where she's got this tray of breakfast in bed stuff, and she's put it together, and she looks at this plant on the table, grabs it, puts it on the tray, carries it out, and then as she's just gotten out of the room, thinks better of it and puts it back. And you just feel her, her husband having gotten home the day before, trying to get it right. That's like the biggest moment of uncertainty from her that we get. But I feel like that tells us so much. Their relationship is clearly the most stable. But another moment I loved is when they're talking to Peggy about her relationship with Fred, where Peggy is like, you guys have it perfect. You were, you know, childhood sweethearts. You have had it so lucky in life. And then they kind of both chuckle and look at each other. And they're just like, how many times have I told you I'm fed up with you? And how many times have you said you're done with me? It just shows like all relationships have trouble. Even Al and Millie, who seem the most stable, have had fights and threatened to leave each other in the past. But while they're saying this, you can still feel the love between them. That conversation, honestly, is kind of the wrap-up of the Al and Millie romance story. Because that recognition between the two of them, of everything they have been through, also feels like it is a recognition that they will get through Al's return from the war. Right. It kind of shakes them both into remembering what their relationship is really like. And things seem to return to a bit of 
more stability between them afterwards. I do really like that. So Al, when he returns, is made his bank's new VP in charge of small loans because thanks to the GI Bill, veterans have a lot more opportunities to get loans. And so they need someone to handle it. And I like that he effectively becomes like Mr. Incredible at the insurance company where he's like, yeah, I'll give you a loan. Like, whatever. Yeah, he basically seemed like a good dude. Approves anything. Well, I mean, it's only one that we see. He approves a loan with no collateral. And clearly has the intention to continue doing so. Right. One thing I didn't really get is if the loan is to buy property, isn't the property the collateral? Isn't the point of a mortgage is just like the bank then actually owns the land? I I think they probably wanted him to put more down. Like just a bigger down payment, I guess. That's what I suspect. Yeah. He was just like, don't you have any bonds or something? That if things go bad, we can, like, you know, basically have. And I'm still just like, I was just kind of confused about how banking worked at the time, I guess. Because I thought the- I barely know how banking works now. I know. I thought the point of the mortgage is, like, the house is the collateral. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, Al basically becomes Mr. Incredible- at the <laughs> insurance agency, but he doesn't end up getting fired. He basically, through a speech at a banquet thrown at his honor, bullies them into becoming a better bank by explaining, like, our bank will, you know, we might be more risky in approving these loans, but we're helping everyone. And he also acknowledges that, like, yeah, I'm going to have to fight every time I give one of these loans, but... I have also made it clear that I plan to continue doing this. Right. And then Millie is incredibly moved by the speech, gives him a kiss, and then they have the discussion with Peggy later, and then they seem to be kind of in a good situation by the end of the movie. They attend a Homer's wedding and seem good. Right. Relationship three. <laughs> Fred right. and Marie. When we go out tonight, will you wear uniform? Oh, no. For my sake. Oh, oh I'm honey, sorry, baby. So no, I... And I'd be so proud to be out with you. Won't you please? Fred and Marie. Okay. So this movie is like very much an ensemble movie. If anyone is our lead, it is Fred. I really don't get how Al won best lead. The movie like... I mean, I... Starts... I think he is also a lead. Yeah. Like, I think this movie has multiple lead performances. That's true. Yeah, because he's not supporting either. Frederick March is very much an established name. He already had an Oscar. He actually is the only person besides Helen Hayes to win two Oscars and two Tonys. Oh, look at him. Yeah. But Fred is played by Dana Andrews, who's mostly like a noir guy. The movie opens and closes on Fred. So he's kind of the through line. And he's the guy who has the hardest adjustment. Right. And so he married Marie after knowing each other for a very little amount of time before the war. She lived near the base where he was trained. And this is the kind of thing that happened a lot during World War II. Right. So they basically have known each other probably a few weeks and then get married. At which point she then moves to Boone City and moves in with his parents in their shack. Right. And then he's gone for a long time because of the war. And she kind of has to make her own way she gets a job cocktail waitressing at a club moves out of the literal shack to a decent apartment it's unclear the extent to which this is a choice by marie or an economic necessity but it definitely is what marie prefers right and i think the movie does a good job not making marie just like a completely unsympathetic villain right Like, you get a good sense that Marie has grown accustomed to living in a certain way. And that way is not presented as bad. No, and it's like she's not even villainized for being a cocktail waitress. Like, it's just a normal job that she had. But Fred basically comes home and immediately makes her quit the job, even though he does not have one, rather than living off of her salary while he gets on his feet. Right. This is a bad move by Fred. Right. And Marie still wants to go out. And continue living the life she was used to. It's also worth noting that Marie very much wants to kind of keep Fred where he was too. Where there's one night where they're going out and she insists that he wear his uniform. She doesn't like the other clothes that he has. She likes him looking hot, dressed as a captain. She gets him to change from his suit into his uniform and tells him, you look like yourself. Because, I mean, the beaten down Fred clearly is experiencing a difficult time. He winds up going back to the drugstore where he had worked as a soda jerk before the war. And he definitely doesn't want to do that. But he's having a hard time because that's the only job he held before the war. And in the war, he was a captain, but he was... A bomber. He was a bomber. So he wasn't, like, planning missions. Right. He didn't get any job, like, um, at the 
store when he's talking to the manager the manager's like did you get any experience with procurement or managing people or anything and fred's just like no i just dropped bombs and hit the target and i was really good at it. i was really good at it and so he struggles he eventually gets a job as the assistant to someone who was his assistant before he left yeah so now he's the like deputy manager and part-time right soda jerk and he now is making a fraction of what he even made in the army as a captain and can't afford to keep marie in the lifestyle she wanted so marie you know starts to feel resentment towards fred and i guess this it intersects somewhat with our point five but ultimately that isn't the main reason this relationship falls apart the main reason the relationship falls apart is because fred and marie aren't actually that compatible you can see how marie who is a little more fun loving would be exciting to fred when he's at the base in a new environment about to go off and maybe die and it kind of shows like people expected to die Right, but now that they are living together, they don't actually fit together. Right, because kind of part of the idea of getting married beforehand is like, well, we probably, till death do us part, probably sooner rather than later. And one day, Fred comes home from looking for jobs after he's been fired for getting in a fight with an America Firster who insulted Homer at the soda fountain. Fred's been out job hunting, and he walks in and he finds this tall, hottie Cliff sitting on his couch. You know, just Marie's old friend. And Fred is like, what the heck are you doing in my house? At which point Marie says, I'm going out with Cliff and I'm also divorcing you. Yeah. And, you know, I think that's fair. They're not. It's a good thing. They're not compatible. They're just making each other miserable. They got married on a whim. Probably best to for both of them to move on. Yep. So uh, point number four, our fourth relationship that we're looking at is Marie and Cliff who hang out in the apartment. And then uh, Cliff goes down to the lobby. Hey, sugar. You better step on it or your husband will be home. Oh, don't worry. He's job hunting. He won't come home for another hour. What if he does? I don't understand it. A guy like that with all his money lying around, he can't get into it. What's the matter with him? Oh, I guess he just isn't very bright. Marie tells Fred that she is divorcing him, and then Marie leaves, and presumably she and Cliff have a happy life. Well, maybe. Or they just continue to hook up. The implication is- If that's what they want, good for them. Yeah, the implication is clearly that Marie and Cliff had sex. Oh, yes, absolutely. But this brings us to point five. Point number five is the relationship between Fred and Peggy, who is Al and Millie's daughter. Why did you do this, Peggy? Do what? What do you mean? Calling up Marie and going out like this to get- I did it deliberately. Why? To prove to myself that what happened this afternoon didn't really happen. And so they first meet on Al, Millie, and Peggy's big night out at the beginning at Butch's, which is their last stop of the evening. Which is the bar run by Homer's uncle. And Fred winds up there because his first night back, he knows that Marie works at a nightclub but his parents didn't know which, so he's just going from bar to bar looking for her. Right. And so while Al and Millie are dancing, Fred and Peggy are left at the table alone. Uh, Clearly there's already some interest between them. They're definitely a little flirty. Yes, definitely. And that night, Fred doesn't know how to get into Marie's building, and he's clearly smashed. So Millie and Peggy take Fred home with them and Peggy puts him to bed in her bed. And then she sleeps on the couch and overhears when Fred has some trauma-induced nightmares. He wakes up screaming about being back in the war and then Peggy comes in and kind of comforts him and manages to get him back to sleep. The next morning, he wakes up incredibly hungover, and she has made him a full and delicious looking breakfast. But he does not remember who she is. Right. It takes him a while to piece it together. They have an incredibly awkward breakfast conversation that includes him asking why she's not engaged. It's such a weird conversation. And then Millie comes in and Fred's still just like, I don't really know who you are. I was blacked out. Uh, I'm going to go. And he basically yep. runs out. They next meet again at the drugstore where Fred is working and one of the best visual gags of the movie when a woman is looking for perfume and Fred clearly knows nothing about it and is helping her and she goes "Ooh, what's this one it's like I think it's called seduction and he's like well it's quite big so it must be good and then he opens it and there's (laughs) he also calls it an all-purpose purpose perfume and he opens it and there's like four boxes inside and eventually he gets to the tiniest little perfume bottle and it's it's so funny 
And then the woman really likes it. Does she buy it? Unsure. Yeah, there's some interesting, like, again, getting at the uh, anti-communist criticism of this movie. There's some real jokes about big companies in here. Yeah. In terms of the packaging, the fact that the drugstore was just owned by this guy in the town before the war, and now it's owned by a big regional conglomerate. Yeah, the movie is not a big fan of chains. So Peggy comes to see Fred at work, and... Fred has to, like, pretend to sell her stuff because the boss has a big window looking out onto the sales floor. But she's like, oh, no, I just came to say hi. And Fred says, hey, look, I got lunch in 20 minutes. So why don't we go get lunch together? Which is exactly the kind of thing that he clearly shouldn't be doing. Yeah. So they get lunch together. They get along very well. Lunch costs... I believe less than $2 and then for both of them. They go out to their respective cars. Peggy drives a lot in this movie, which I don't know why, but I thought was really cool. Like when she's- She's a cool lady. When she's the driver of the family to all the bars. Thank God. She's the DD. She's the DD in a time when you don't see a lot of DDs in movies. So they have a nice lunch and like kind of an awkward conclusion to the lunch when she's like, I guess you need to go back to work right they go outside and then between these cars have an incredibly passionate kiss right fred kisses her very passionately but then immediately apologizes gets in his car and goes away yeah and when he gets home he discovers that peggy has called marie and invited fred and marie to go on a double date with her and some guy right because basically peggy is trying to decide if fred really loves marie and also she tells her parents when her parents are like what what is happening she says that she's in love with fred and doesn't want to be and she's like well if i just get used to the idea of him being with a wife then i'll be okay i kind of get it but it's also a bad idea and it clearly proves to be a bad idea at this incredibly awkward double date it's incredible oh it's rough so peggy brings this like tall rich hottie named woody who really wants to marry her and the whole time basically peggy's talking to fred and ignoring woody and she tells fred that she set up the double date to prove to herself the kiss didn't happen and fred's like well if we keep hanging out we're just gonna kiss more and then the date ends and well oh also in the bathroom marie gives peggy this whole speech about how she should grab woody while she can she gives a whole monologue about her marie's and fred's finances and pretty much straight up says that she's not happy right and also tells peggy to go see her hairstylist right she's she's basically like peggy you're kind of ugly but you don't have to be it's so funny which is a contrast to fred at the store when he was like working the beauty counter and he was like peggy you shouldn't buy any of this stuff because a you're pretty and b like some of this stuff is a scam i loved when he was like well this is vanishing cream and this is cream to remove vanishing cream so if you don't buy the vanishing (laughs) cream you won't need to buy the remover right um so after the date is when peggy has the conversation with her parents in which she announces that she has decided to become a homewrecker right Uh, Her parents aren't too... Which is a word that she uses. Yeah. Her parents, none too thrilled about that. And this is where Al takes Fred out to the restaurant and says, stop seeing my daughter. He's basically like, you're not doing my daughter any favors by effectively stringing her along. Right. And so they stop seeing each other for a while. Fred agrees. I guess but the, <laughs> the next they see each other next at the wedding. Right. And so they see each other. They make significant eye contact across the room. It's an incredible shot because Homer is getting married to Wilma and they are, I mentioned this at the beginning, like they're what takes up most of the frame. We're seeing Fred from behind. It's like just his shoulder and the side of his head on the edge of the frame. I didn't notice until like halfway through this long scene that then Peggy was standing in the middle of a crowd and she and Fred were just staring at each other through the entire scene. Right. And so Fred now has a new job. He was going to leave town and look for new opportunities in either East or West. Yeah, he went to the like Air Force and said, send me in a direction. But he finds a new job helping to scrap airplanes. Still not making a lot of money, but at least he has a job. And then they make significant eye contact at the wedding. And then after Homer and Wilma kiss, Fred and Peggy share a smooch. And that's the end of the movie. Fred just like rushes across the room and it's great. So after watching all of the best years of our lives, do you find the romances believable? Yeah, I do. I think all of them are believable. Yeah, there's not one like outrageous romance, which usually is the case when we have a lot of different relationships to dig into. Right. I also like that all of them are affected differently by the experience of the war. Right. It's telling very much three separate stories, which I appreciate because everyone had different experiences of the war. So every week we rate the romance's believability on a 10-point scale, with one being the least and 10 being the most believable. Where would you rate this? 
I don't know. I'm leaning towards like a nine. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, there's just nothing that stands out as too unbelievable, but I think some of the romances are a bit rushed in a way. And things would have been more rushed in the 1940s than we're familiar with, but I don't think we're quite at the 10 level. Right. Do you think that any of our romantic leads is dateable? I think a lot of them are. Yeah, I think so. I think the only ones that I wouldn't... I don't know that I would date Marie myself. I don't think Marie would want to date, if that makes sense. I think she wants to, like, live her life, and I respect that, but it doesn't make her a very dateable figure. Yeah. I think pretty much all of the others are. Yeah. So, do you think that these couples will stay together? I think they all will. What about Cliff and Marie? (laughs) No. (laughs) I don't think Cliff and Marie think they're going to stay together. But our three central couples do feel like they have some real longevity to them. Right. In part because we've gotten to see such expansive support in this movie. Right. We've seen the full story of these relationships. So usually when we struggle to answer this question, it's because we haven't seen enough. But in this one, I feel like we've seen enough of the romances to believe that they would stay together. Which is a strength of this long runtime. Like the reason that people complain about movie length is because so many movies use their length poorly with like, especially these days, a lot of them are overlong previs action sequences. Right. But a movie like this can use a long runtime to immerse the viewers in the lives of human beings. And that's its great strength. I think that the movies can't stuff a runtime, which sometimes it feels like long movies do. There's no padding. There's no fat in this movie that you could cut. Like it is a two hour and 50 minute movie that is still very lean. And it moves quickly. I mean, you mentioned this earlier. It doesn't like hang out in a lot of long scenes. Right. Everything is kind of moves at a clip. And that's what you can do when you have basically what could be three separate movies happening at the same time. Right. Now, if you did have to pick one person in this movie to date, who would you choose? I think I would choose Millie. Usually there's not enough characters to to make a good pick. But this movie has too many good characters where I'm struggling. I think I would choose Wilma. Okay. See, I like Millie because I so appreciated getting to see the different ways that she loves all the people in her life and the ways that she also like gives Peggy and Al enough space to try out who they are and to try different things. And she's very supportive of that, but is also willing to reel them in when it's necessary. Yeah, she is such a good stable figure that is also a real human and not just like right. a stable figure. Right, unlike a like wife pillar character, she is granted a lot of humanity herself. Right. I think that Wilma just shows such true love in a way that is not just like love like she shows all the aspects of it like the supportive side of it the caring side as well as the passion and she also just seems very nice yeah now mark last question before we are done Mm -hmm. many of the films we've covered on this podcast have been adapted into stage musicals do you think this should be done with the best years of our lives no i do not oh see i think it would work i think the one of the strengths of this movie and its storytelling is the natural element of it I think the naturalism is what grounds the movie and really shows you what life was like after World War II, and a musical would take you out of that. You know what? That's a good point. I do think that like some of these pieces could work well, but I, th- I think you are right that the stripped-down nature of this movie is a big part of what makes it work so well. I think you could tell a good soldiers returning from World War II story in a musical form. I just don't think it would be this story. Yeah, I can work with that. All right, I think that is about it for this movie. Um, I'd check it out if you haven't. It's very good. Many of you probably have time this week, so sit down and just enjoy a good movie. Well... Happy Thanksgiving, but you know what that means. Christmas movies are coming up. As we did last year, we will spend the next four weeks watching Christmas movies. We will watch two traditional theatrically released films. And with our Christmas movie expert, Fifi Fierce, we will watch two direct-to-TV Christmas romances. Yikes. We'll be starting off with the 12 Dates of Christmas in honor of this year's Palm Springs, a time loop movie about... People falling in love at Christmas time. Oh, God. I have no desire to watch this, but it's coming. Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love to Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. 
Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Reviews, especially on Apple Podcasts, are really helpful. We appreciate everyone who has left us a review. Honestly, including our one-star review from a listener who seems to not really get what the show is about and was looking for the radio broadcast of the Nick and Nora Charles movie, The Thin Man. Speaking of Myrna Loy, um, I hope that whoever posted that review figured out how to delete our episode because they <laughs> seemed very upset about it. All right. Last question. What's the best piece of dating advice we got from the best years of our lives? I think be honest if a relationship isn't working with someone because that's part of the problem that Fred and Marie are having. I think that's a really good point. There's a lot of good advice in this movie. I think showing and not just telling. Like when Wilma shows her love for Homer by helping him and not just saying it is when Homer feels the love. And we love the love. And we love the love. All right. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. 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 Bye.